According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have children. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are going to be in Proverbs chapter 7 again this morning as we get started. Proverbs chapter 7. Alrighty, returning where we left off a week ago, did we start this last week? We did, we started chapter 7 last week, it was two weeks ago we were off and then uh, came back. Alright, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you, keep my commandments and live. And we have the imperative to live, and uh, it, it may at first seem to be nonsensical, isn't everybody living already living? But we're not, and it is a consequence and an imperative, and so we want to understand it for what it is. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside distractions and bless our time of study in his word today. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we do thank you for your truth. We thank you for this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, uh, we have several folks out this morning, so we're asking for your blessing upon them and their travels, bringing them back to us, Father, safely according to your will and in your timing. Father, we thank you now for this uh, blessing to study to show ourselves approved, and I pray that we would understand what it means to uh, keep your commandments and live. Father, I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this chapter is the fourth and the longest of the five discourses on fornication that can be found in the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. Uh, Of course, we've titled the first nine chapters of Proverbs Parental Wisdom, and it's almost as if the book has a do-over. It gets a a brand new beginning with chapter 10 and verse 1, where uh, it says the Proverbs of Solomon. Uh, a wise son makes a father glad, and it goes on. It's like chapter 10 begins the book. Well, it doesn't begin the book, but it does begin the next section of the book, and specifically with the Proverbs that are primarily of Solomon's origin. Uh, the first nine chapters, although Solomon wrote them down, we actually understand them to be the, the Proverbs of David. The Proverbs of David and Bathsheba, the parental wisdom that David and Bathsheba bestowed uh, into Solomon during his upbringing, during his childhood, and uh, the issues there. So this is now the fourth of the five discourses on fornication. And basically it takes us through verses 6 through 23. It has a prologue in the first five verses and an epilogue in the last four verses. And uh, you can spot those pretty easily, at least as far as uh, the New American Standard has uh, paragraphed the, uh, the chapter. Verses 1 through 5 are set apart from verses 6 through 23, which are again set apart from verses 24 through 27. So the Translators of the NASB agreed with my outline, not that they consulted me, but it's uh, it's a good way to divide the chapter apart. Uh, the previous such admonishments included a very short one in chapter 2, a uh, much longer one in chapter 5, as well as chapter 6. The last part of chapter 6, which we just recently finished, verses 24 through 35, and now this one being the fourth. The final one is, uh, again, shorter 
It's like the first one is fairly short, the last one is fairly short, but it concludes the parental wisdom portion of the book. Proverbs 9, verses 13 through 18 is uh, really, as uh, this section is winding down, uh, it's as if... uh, uh, one final opportunity before you leave home, <laughs> okay? A young man getting ready to leave father and mother and depart on his own, or a young woman, as I say, make this uh, gender applicable to your son or to your daughter, and uh, they will be blessed accordingly. All right, so there's the uh, the five discourses on fornication. Secondly, treasuring the Word of God means I place it in a particular location, both guarded and regarded. And this is a repeat, by the way. We gave you this point in Proverbs chapter 2. In fact, word for word in Proverbs chapter 2, we gave you this point. I just cut and pasted it to put it in the chapter 7 notes. But we do want to treasure the Word of God. It says, keep my words, that is to guard them, shamer, but then treasure my commandments within you. And this is the Hebrew tzafan, such as we have in Psalm 119 and verse 11. That's probably the most famous of the tzafan uh, uses, where it says, Thy word I have hid in my heart, I have treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. And uh, other uses I find interesting, how they hid the baby Moses in Exodus chapter 2, how Rahab hid the spies in uh, Joshua 2. It's more than just concealing from view or hiding from observation, but it has the idea of protecting, treasuring, guarding. And so you have it in a very specific place so that it's kept from harm, but it's also readily available to you. You have access to it because you know exactly where you're keeping it. Job 23.12 is a good use of it there. Psalm 83 I love. Psalm 83.3 as well as of course the famous Psalm 119 and verse 11. And so treasuring is a concept we talked about last week and uh, if you missed that you can uh, get that off the website. Now the apple of the eye or the pupil of the eye, however you want to render this in English, but it is a particular place of observation and affection. It shows you that this is your immediate focus. This is what your eyes are locked in on. All right, this is something I had learned over the years not to do when I'm preaching. I tend to preach to the clock or the thermostat or just different things because it, it, I don't want to lock eyes on somebody at, at the wrong moment. <laughs> okay, And um, that can be awkward on occasion. So uh, in any event, but if I do lock eyes for some reason with some person for whatever reason, then that's what the idea is here with the apple of the eye. It is the particular focus where your eyes are dilated or your eyes are, are, are locked in on something. And uh, and so it's the particular place of observation and affection. It doesn't mean, of course, that God's not omniscient or he's not omnipotent or he's not omnipresent or he's not everywhere, uh, that he's ignorant of what's happening, okay? And it's it's the difference between your, your direct view and your peripheral vision. And, and so if God is holding somebody in his direct view, that means he's watching him, he's watching him intently or closely, or he's focused on that. And other things may be peripheral. See. Anyway, uh, Israel is the object of his affection. Israel, the nation Israel, is the apple of his eye. And so when Gentile nations afflict Israel, they have to know that they are afflicting the apple of Jehovah's eye, and uh, and they're going to face discipline for that. Uh, We should keep his word as, as the focus of our attention, and that's the emphasis of it here. 
Um, Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Let it be the, the, the most precious thing you love to keep your eyes on. Okay? That's what the Word of God should be. And so, you know, really just as an idiom, as an expression, I think it illustrates very well the, the diagram that uh, uh, Dan Craw gave us a couple weeks ago. If, if you remember the diagram when he was spelling out the difference between uh, spirituality and carnality and the time that we spend in fellowship versus the time that we spend out of fellowship. And ideally, we want to be consistently in fellowship with occasional drops into carnality and then very quickly we, we confess and we're restored back to fellowship very quickly so that our prolonged time is actually in fellowship. And, and I love the diagram, it's very useful and, and, and we can use the concept here, okay? Because the opposite is, of course, you spend most of your time in carnality and then every so often you confess, you get back in fellowship, but your stay there isn't very long and then you're back into carnality again, right? Now that's the picture of what we don't want to do. And when it comes to keeping doctrine or the Word of God as the apple of your eye, the same diagram can be employed. In other words, the amount of time we spend focused on the Word of God ought to be consistently there. And then occasionally there's other things that we look at. And interestingly enough, even when we occasionally look at something besides the Word of God, we can have those observations shaped by the Word of God. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the Word, I'm studying, I'm growing, whatever, and then I may take a look at, uh, I may read a, a political article on a website, or I may read a, a magazine article about politics or current events or whatever, but I don't want to spend hours and hours and hours there. I want to get right back into the Word of God again. And so those other things that I'm reading are shaped by the Word of God, as opposed to the opposite. Okay, where I'm reading political article after political article after political article, and I've spent nine hours just devouring everything political imaginable, listening to radio programs, watching Fox News, doing whatever, and then only occasionally, then oh, you know, one day a week or a couple times a month, I'll then crack open a Bible and see what God might have to say on something. <laughs> okay, and that's the ratio of what we're talking about. You you know what the apple of your eye is based upon how much time you spend staring at it. All right, that's what's precious to you. And then, of course, the eye is the gate to the soul, and that's what's going to fill your soul. And uh, there's principles that, uh, that apply there. All right, which now gets us to where we left off and where we are now in main point four with the command to live. It is both an imperative and a consequence of all these other imperatives, specifically, keep my commandments and doing so you will live. Okay, But there's all these other commandments. Keep my words, treasure my commandments, keep my commandments, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. All of those are imperatives from verse 1 down to verse 4. All right, and the consequence then I think comes out in in verse five. Too many people make verse uh, two the consequence: keep my commandments and live. They're really tandem imperatives. Keep my commandments; that's an imperative, and live; that's also an imperative, connected to the first one: keep my commandments. And then the second object of keep is keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Anyway, these are the fun things you get into when you diagram a sentence (laughs) and when you diagram a Hebrew sentence. 
All right. So we have the eye that's introduced in verse 2. We have fingers and heart in verse 3. And we've got a concept here that um, I find fun. I find it useful to consider that we, uh, we have these sensory receptors to the Word of God. What do I mean by that? Sensory receptors. In other words, it's not just looking at the truth. It's not just hearing a message, but it's seeing it and it's smelling it, and it's tasting it, and it's touching it, and feeling it, okay? I I promised you last week that we're going to get touchy-feely this morning, okay? Not in the way the liberal churches do it. We're going to get touchy-feely on a biblical basis. We're going to understand what it means to touch, to feel, as in you're binding them on your fingers, all right? You know, like touching something sticky and then you come away from it and now you've got something sticky on your fingers, okay? Well, we want something, we want doctrine on our fingers because that's what we're touching, that's what we're handling, that's what we're feeling, that's what we're tasting. And so I think it's a principle, eye, fingers, and heart must interact with truth. And beyond that, I believe, ears, nose, and mouth are also presented as sensory receptors to the written and living word. And we should use all of our spiritual perceptions, okay? And all of the physical, earth, you know, bodily perceptions have a soul parallel. So you've got eyes, you've got the eyes of your heart. You have ears, but you have your spiritual ears. He that has an ear to hear. And, and, and I think those we understand quickly, but we also have spiritual taste and spiritual smell and spiritual uh, touch, okay? And this is uh, kind of a neat thing to consider. What does 1 John 1, 1 say? I don't have Dan to tease this morning, but he taught this, and I thought he taught it very well when he taught it in 1 John. What was from the beginning, what we have heard... And that's where everybody wants to stop. <laughs> Doctrinal believers want to stop there because you go to Bible class and you hear. He that has an ear, let him hear. And it's all about the hearing. It's all about the, it's more than the hearing. It's hearing and seeing and touching and feeling and tasting and smelling. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, which is different from seeing, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And so we understand that the Word of God, we learn, yes, we learn audibly, but we also learn visually. We also learn by feel, the tactile uh, learning that we do. Okay, and I love that. I love the, the learning process. And this is what the, the Bible describes when it says like newborn babes. Well, how does a babe learn? A babe learns, they're constantly touching stuff. They're t- constantly putting things in their mouth. They're constantly, I mean, they're just babies, how do they, how do they, what is their sensory input? Okay. They're looking at stuff, they're hearing stuff, they're smelling stuff, they're tasting stuff, they're feeling stuff. And that's how we're supposed to be with the Word of God. Beyond uh, the fingers, which we have in Proverbs 7 and we have in 1 John, we also have ears. That's the easy one. Interestingly, ears are not mentioned in uh, Proverbs 7. The eye is there, the fingers are there, the heart is there. Uh, ears aren't mentioned as a, as a body part in Proverbs 7. But we do have ears, lots of places. Of course, the very famous Revelation 2 and 3, seven times to seven churches, it says, he that has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. But even prior to that, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we have ears. As Jesus says here. Matthew 11 and verse 15. And that's kind of the conclusion to a larger context here. And he's trying to, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but it's, it's his testimony regarding John the Baptist. And uh, anyway, different, uh, different things there. He says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than uh, John the Baptist. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And goes on to describe these things. And if you are willing to accept it, that's a curious construction there. If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Okay? If you think of it this way, if you understand the principles... Then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Is he talking about the, you know, the skin flaps hanging on the side of your skull? Is he talking about the, 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 the physical ears of the body? No, clearly he's talking about the spiritual ears of the, of the soul spirit. All right? And I think it's, strictly speaking, I think it's the spirit that has the ears. Because the unbeliever has a soul but cannot hear. But when the spirit is made alive, now you've got ears to hear. All right, still in Matthew chapter 13, verse 9 and verse 43. Again, it's the concluding verse to a uh, discourse. It's almost like uh, you wonder, was this his, was this his signature sign-off moment? You know, is this how he concluded his message every time he spoke? Well, not every time, but many times he would speak and he would wrap it up with, he who has ears, let him hear. In this case, it's the parable of the sower. All right? And it's interesting because he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And then there's the disciples who have ears. Disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? (laughs) All right? Of course, we've gone through these. Uh, He says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Anyway, there's the imperative, let him hear. And just because you have ears doesn't mean you're using them. You're commanded to use them. Same chapter down to verse 43. Um, Talking about the tares and what's going to happen at the end of the age. And uh, we've got to be careful. Sometimes we can't wait for this to happen, but then we have to check ourselves and say, you know, I'd actually prefer they get saved in the meantime so that they don't become, so that he doesn't have to throw them in the fire at the end of the age. But then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay? Again, it's not the skin flaps on the side of your skull. It's not the physical ears that we have in our, in our uh, physical bodies. It's the ear of the soul. It's the ear of the, of the living human spirit that is commanded to listen to what the Holy Spirit is communicating. And then seven times in Revelation 2 and 3, I mean, you start with verse 7 and, and just track it. Um, the, uh, the final admonition to each of these churches He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the ecclesiae 
churches plural, all right? The, the Holy Spirit is ministering through local churches. And that doesn't deny your individual priesthood or you can stay home and read your Bible and learn stuff. But the primary method that you are accountable for is the message out of that's coming through the local churches. And again, we're not saying you can't stay home, you can't read your Bible, and you're not going to be blessed if for whatever reason you decide, um, hey, you know, I've got a curiosity or I want to learn this or I'm puzzled over that. So you're at home and you're reading, uh, you know, whatever, Obadiah, or you're reading Exodus. or I'm not telling you that any of those books of the Bible is without profit. You will profit. But Right now, the Holy Spirit is communicating Isaiah and Galatians and Proverbs to the flock of Austin Bible Church. And we are accountable to receive the content of what he's getting across. We're accountable individually, but we're accountable corporately as a body. This flock has to make application of Isaiah and and Galatians and Proverbs. Because that's what the Holy Spirit is communicating to the local churches. Then verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear. Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear. Pretty easy to spot these. It's the last verse of each of these paragraphs as uh, they're uh, delineated here in these chapters. Chapter 3, it's verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear. And uh, verse 13 and verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear. All right? Additionally, the nose. The nose should be a sensory receptor. The nose. Okay? We should smell. And uh, in, in both ways we use the word smell. All right? We should produce an aroma, but then we should also uh, inhale and smell as a sensory receptor because it's refreshing. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 and verse 16. Philippians 4 and verse 18 that talk about the sweet-smelling aroma. And uh, remarkably enough, it's the same thing that produces opposite smells. Depending on he who has a nose, let him smell. Okay? (laughs) Ooh, I should write that. I could write a book or something. He that has a nose, let him smell. But uh, we are a fragrance in Second Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14 says, Thanks be to God, that's the Father, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Remember, we are in Christ, but the Father was in Christ first, reconciling the world to himself. All right? And so what is the Father doing in the church age? The church age is the Father's triumph in Christ. And just like a, a conquering Caesar would have a parade through the streets of Rome, uh, this is what God's doing in the church age. We are the parade through the streets of Rome, as it were. And so he manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Okay? And it may be that, uh, you know, people may close their ears. They don't want to listen to what you have to say. And they may, you know avert their eyes they don't want to look at you all right well they're going to smell you (laughs) whether they want to or not they're going to smell you because the father is manifesting through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place for we are a fragrance of christ we're a fragrance of christ we're supposed to be okay 
We are. That's what he's designed us to be. You know, so that just, you know, <laughs> you could, you ever feel at home when you're in a church that's not this one, but it's one similar to this one, and you feel like, ah, you know, because the teaching is comparable, the message is, you know, it's a similar sound, it's a similar look, it's a similar smell. Yeah, you're comfortable here. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are the being saved ones and also among those who are the perishing ones. And interestingly enough, two different groups of people in that verse, and they have different reactions to what they're smelling. To the one, an aroma from death to death. That's not good. But to the other, an aroma of life to life. If you don't have the life of Christ... That's not a pleasant aroma. But for those who are, man, that's fragrance right there. That's uh, what a blessing. And who is adequate for these things? <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? All right. And then finally, Philippians 4.18, another reference. This, interestingly enough, relates to service and sacrifices that are being made. Philippians 4.18 I have received everything in full. This is his, uh, the aspect on giving, financial giving. He says, uh, you know, he's learned how to be humble, to get along. He's thankful that, uh, back to verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your concern, revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. You never stop praying, you never stop being concerned, you just may have seasons where you're not able to practically or financially do something about what you're concerned about. So you leave it as a prayer item and let the Father uh, work in somebody else. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, I also know how to live in prosperity. There's a secret to both. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. You want to learn doctrinally how to operate under either condition. This is the context then, for I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is, I can be content in every, in every facet of life. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You identify with the other person and, and their need or their deficiency. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. They were the only ones, not only with the capacity, but also, uh, I mean, with the, with the willingness, but also the financial capacity to do something about it. Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. They had the right attitude, they just didn't have the, the capacity, they didn't have the, the means. Okay? We've seen that. That's compatible with 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have the means, you don't have the means. It's the desire that's rewardable. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. The attitude that wants to give is the attitude that is blessed, that is profited. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Now here's the issue. A fragrant aroma. Is that what they sent? <laughs> Did they send a fragrant aroma with Epaphroditus? Did he travel all the way to Rome from Philippi with 
Perfume? You know, what did he show up with? Um, showed up with cash. Showed up with funds. Showed up with the, the, the funding to support Paul in his imprisonment. Nevertheless, that was a fragrant aroma as it, as it ascended to the Father, as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And if we take the time to smell the roses, right, or wake up to smell the coffee or smell the... We've got several smelling idioms, okay? Um, some are inappropriate for church. We'll let that go. But there's smelling idioms, okay? And we have the capacity to stop and smell what God is smelling and celebrate with God that here's a believer oriented to the principles of the Word of God. Well-pleasing to God. And so my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You're never harmed by offering these well-pleasing sacrifices. Other uh, applications we can make there. So we want to include our nose, our spiritual nose, with our fingers, with our ears, with our eyes, with our mouth. These are the ways that we learn. We learn through all of these sensory inputs, okay, or sensory receptors, meaning we are receiving content. We are receiving stimuli based on what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we uh, smell, what we taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good, all right? The mouth is a sensory uh, receptor. And maybe we've lost sight of that. Uh, babies haven't, okay? In fact, in a lot of ways, you know, that's the first thing they go for. They see something. Okay, I guess seeing is the first thing they go for. And then they want to grab it with their fingers, and then they want to stick it in their mouth. And I love that. We want to become like that with the Word of God. Oh, okay. I want to see it. I want to grab hold of it. And I want to stick it in my mouth. I want to see what it tastes like. Okay? And if it's doctrinal, um, there we have it. So here's the mouth verses. Psalm 34, 8. Psalm 34, 8. Yeah. Every once in a while I... You're watching an old Western and, and they, uh, they, they pick up a chunk of gold or a coin and then they bite into it or they taste it. I don't even know what they're doing, you know, but you see it in all these old movies, you know, am I supposed to tell or, uh, uh, you know, dipping the finger in the, in the cocaine and telling whether, you know, these, uh, professional, uh, I never had that class in my MP school. I never learned how to, uh, test the taste of cocaine. But you see it in all the movies. Hey, it's a sensory input. All right. <laughs> Psalm 34. Uh, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So what are you tasting? <laughs> okay, you're tasting the Lord. You're tasting his truth, the truth of his word. The uh, the The beautiful context of this psalm when um, um, you know are you at a low point in your ministry when you have to act like a madman to escape from someplace that's where that's where david was started drooling all over his beard started acting like a complete uh, you know imbecile and and the 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 it worked the the philistine king you know abimelech said 
Do I lack madmen that you brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Get him out of here. So he escapes, and then he writes Psalm 34. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty cool. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's an invitation not only for me to worship, but I can share this with everyone that has the capacity to, uh, to worship in, in this way. I sought the Lord and he answered me, delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about these hooligans that were following David. He's talking about these, uh, these, these down and out people uh, that, that actually had accumulated themselves to David's leadership during this time of political chaos under King Saul. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The Lord, of, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. So taste and see that the Lord is good. He's encouraging these men that are serving him to learn from his example, and they can taste themselves. Develop a prayer life, claim the promises, eat the word of God. Taste and see. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. All right, come, you children, listen to me. Verse 11, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He's not just a commander of a mercenary troop. (laughs) All right, he's their Bible class teacher. All right. Anyways, there's our first example. We also have Psalm 119, verse 103. Clearly, the uh, psalmist of Psalm 119 was greatly impacted by the Davidic Psalms. Of course, a lot of people think David himself wrote Psalm 119, but I think it was a young man uh, heavily influenced by David's Psalms. Uh, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Now, is this just flowery poetry and it's a waste of space? Or why is this in here? Okay, There's a reality to this poetry. The word should be tasty. So, um, and, and why, you know, <laughs> I love the, the variety we have in, in the word of God. He didn't have to design it that way. He didn't have to design our, our bodies that way. Everything could taste the same if he wanted it. I mean, he could have made us like cows. We could be eating grass or whatever. But no, he gives us taste buds. Why did he design the tongue that way? Why did he design taste buds that way? Why, why are there things that are bitter and sweet and, and sour? And why, why does he give us the flavor of the different things? Why is bacon so awesome? All right, Because God loves us. <laughs> All right, And we have these different pleasures and tastes and appreciation for these things didn't have to design it like that you know he could have made humanity uh you know could have given us a photosynthesis procedure or whatever we could have just absorbed sunlight you know and 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 brought nutrients to our to our physical existence but no he let us eat with flavor because he loves us but it's the same thing with the word of god we get, we get to eat with flavor in the Word of God. Okay, where did I leave off? Psalm. Okay, Hebrews. Hebrews 
This is uh, in a context related to uh, growing in maturity. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. In other words, once you're saved, you've got to get grounded in how to confess your sins, be restored to fellowship. Uh, but that's not the totality of the Christian walk. You've got to grow on. You've got to press on. Instruction about washing and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of a heavenly gift... You know, if you think about it, just the down payment we have in the in the, the earnest, the deposit of the Holy Spirit is just a taste of what's to come. But we should keep on tasting. We should keep on devouring that until some time as we're face to face and we see it in the reality of heaven. But those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, Man, just imagine. You know what the Word of God does for us now as we're fallen creatures and fallen bodies? What's the Word of God going to do for us in the, in the millennium, in the fullness of time, in the resurrection? Taste those powers. So there's tasting there. And of course, 1 Peter 2, 3, which I probably should have started with. But like newborn babes... So therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, why is that the introduction to this tasting concept? It's like, you know, he that has an ear, let him hear. He that has a nose, let him nose, let him smell. He that has a mouth, let him taste. But you're not going to, carnality blocks all of that. Carnality keeps you from seeing. Carnality keeps you from hearing. Carnality keeps you from touching and feeling. Carnality keeps you from smelling. Carnality actually gives you the opposite smell. Carnality keeps you from tasting. That's why you have to put aside. That's why you have to confess your sins. You have to be restored to fellowship or you cannot taste. So putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, put uh, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What do you taste when you take in the word of God? There too, okay? I think um, similar to the smell, if you're carnally minded, it's going to leave a sour taste in your mouth. Similar to uh, you know the, the, how the same thing can smell opposite smells to the regenerate, to the unregenerate, to the spiritual or to the carnal. And uh, there's things in the carnality that we taste that taste great when we first take them, but it's a carnal taste because it goes down and it's then bitterness, we're told. Okay? So we want to make sure we're in fellowship as we are partaking. So... Uh, eyes, fingers, heart. We've got to be interacting with truth. We've got to be having all of our sensory inputs in, in play as we're taking in the Word of God. These are all presented as sensory receptors to the written and the living Word. So back to Proverbs then. Point B. 
Sibling and kinsman intimacy with the Word of God protects the believer from harmful fallen intimacies. Proverbs chapter 7. Let's get back now to verse 4. See what this is dealing with. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend or your closest kinsman. Your closest kinsman. Sibling and kinsman intimacy with the Word of God. It protects the believer from harmful fallen intimacies. If we're intimate with the Word of God, we don't search for the false kind of intimacies. We don't look for the the cosmos provision as Satan will offer the wrong kind of intimacies. That's what this whole section's about. We want to have the right kind of embracing so that we aren't vulnerable to the wrong kind of embracing. Uh, it's because of fornication then that each man should have his own wife. Each wife should have her own husband. All right, The right kind of intimacies are a protection against the wrong kind, the harmful, destructive intimacies. So say to wisdom, you are my sister. Let's start there. <laughs> Let's develop a brother-sister-sibling intimacy. And this becomes then foundational for later in life. You learn... Um, you know, you learn how to, in treating your sisters biblically, you learn the purity of, of um, you learn the nature of girls. <laughs> so they're not these alien creatures that you're trying to figure out uh, when you get married, all right? And uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate if you never had a sister and then you get married and for the first time you start to figure out girls are different than boys, okay? Well, yeah, you could have figured that out from the time you were two, I got my first sister at the age of two. But you start to learn this aspect of intimacy. And you start to learn the nature of um, caring for one another and protecting one another and having a sibling care of souls. Okay? Before you ever start to venture into other realms, okay? Of intimacy. You know, this uh, was previously an issue back in Proverbs chapter 4. It also comes up in Song of Solomon, some of these issues here. Let's back up to chapter 4. But you know, there's things about intimacy with siblings, with sisters, and a protectiveness and a concern, and things that's better to learn earlier rather than later. All right, Proverbs 4, verses 6 through 8. Again, the imperative is to learn, to grow, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget or turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. She will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom and with all you're acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. This is the language of, of, of intimacy. You are prizing you are honoring you are uh, embracing okay and with your sister <laughs> the the embrace is 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 entirely love and protection and it's 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 uh there's nothing improper about it okay 
Whereas the other kind of embracing, you've got other motives at work. <laughs> All right, there's other motivations at play. There's other, uh, you know, things on your mind. You're hoping that the, you know, in the carnal kind of sense, you're hoping that this leads to something beyond that. All right. Anyway, the appropriate embracing, particularly the protective embracing, the pure embracing. That's why with sisters, the the admonition comes to Timothy to deal with the younger men and the younger women as sisters in all purity. You've got to learn that kind of uh, intimacy first. All right, so there it is, uh, the embracing of that. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8. And here's a interesting context I'd like to teach Song of Solomon someday and we'll see if I uh, get a chance to do it All right, Song of Samuel, uh, Song of Samuel, chapter eight. Oh, that you were like a brother to me. Now she's actually speaking about her lover. She's speaking about the the shepherd lover that she's longing for. All right, and in the in the context here, of course, she's kind of stuck because the king came along and grabbed her and took her into his harem, and now she's longing for rescue. And then we got notes on this in the in the in the uh, through the Bible series. Uh, but oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. You know, we would be, we could be alone because we'd be siblings and, and no one would, would, um, think anything about me hugging you or me kissing you. And it would be, it would be viewed as, as right and normal, uh, because we are siblings. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. And uh, no one would think anything would be um, improper because you're my brother. And there's a level of intimacy here that would be acceptable in our, uh, in our culture. All right. But then, of course, she wants it to go beyond that in uh, verses 3 and 4. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Now that, that crosses into realms that are not appropriate for siblings. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken Dode until she pleases. This is the word for sexual love. This is the word for physical love between a husband and a wife. And you don't want to wake that up too early. Until she pleases, there's a time to wake up those kind of feelings. And that's one of the most repeated verses in the whole book. That uh, abjuration to the daughters of Jerusalem, to the virgins in uh, the king's house. Anyway, so we have this intimacy and we want to develop the right kind of intimacy. We want to have the uh, appropriate uh, familiarity with the word of God, the intimacy with doctrine. To where defiling that is unthinkable. When these uh, other temptations come along, it's, it's not even a temptation. Okay? Because we're so locked in on truth. The Word of God will protect us from the strange woman. 
As it says back in Proverbs 7, they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Well, why is that attractive? Why is it seductive? Why is it flattering? Why is there any kind of appeal there? I think that the majority of the of the issues here, uh, the, the person leaves themselves vulnerable to that kind of seduction because their soul is not intimate with the Lord. There is something that the soul is craving and if, if the, the believer is not dealing with that biblically, then the, the world system will be more than happy to provide an alternative, provide a substitute, provide some kind of a stimulus to, uh, to try to meet those felt needs. Okay. Then we have the, uh, the issues there. All right, I guess that's enough on that. The um, imperative of revive me. Cause me to live. Cause me to live. You know, the um, keep my commandments and live, the idea of revive me, the idea of if I'm going to live the abundant life in Christ, it's going to come from God himself. He is the one that's going to cause it to happen. Cause me to live. It's the most common imperative in Psalm 119. And it's the emphasis of what we see here in obeying this imperative. Keep my commandments and live. Cause me to live. Revive me. Revive me. Um, You know, not to be a legalist about it or or whatever, but the, the, the old concept of revival is biblical. It's biblical if it's if it's a doctrinal endeavor. If it is a true hunger for the Word of God, okay? Not if it's just an emotional pep rally appeal. That's the problem with tent revivals. That's the problem with all too often it becomes an emotional thing, not a doctrinal thing. Give me a season where I'm just in the Word of God. Let's put other things on hold. Let's let's have a fast from other things and have a true revival. Revive me according to your word, we're told. Nine times in Psalm 119. It is the most common imperative of Psalm 119. It narrowly beats out, teach me and make me understand. But notice how close those are, and notice how connected all of these are. Teach me, eight times. Make me understand, six times. (laughs) And I don't think you can separate those activities. Make me live. Cause me to live. Revive me. And that is cause me to thrive in the abundant life that I have as a believer in Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about with this command to live. We're not saying have biological life. Everybody has biological life. But how many are truly walking in the abundant life that is in Christ? That are living that Zoe the Zoe life we receive when we're saved. I think all too often we get wrapped up in bios and don't even think about Zoe. All right, Psalm 119. Had some fun with uh, my daughter, Zoe, yesterday related to this, this whole concept here. The kind of life we receive in Christ. Okay? The only life that ever has eternal attached to it. There's no such thing as eternal bios or any other kind of life you want to point to. It's only Zoe that has the Ionios adjective. 
So uh, verse 25 is the first one of these. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. So there it is. We've got discouragement of soul. We got, uh, you know, remember the body is what returns to the dust. Why is the soul cleaving to the dust? Uh, but there it is. I think in our discouragements and in our, in our testing, um, Jesus reached this point. He said a soul was troubled to the point of death. Revive me according to your word. That doesn't mean you're carnal. It just means you're, you're going through some tough times. You need him to revive you. Cause me to live according to your word. And I can enjoy that. Um, notice there's the teach me in verse 28 and the make me understand in verse, I'm sorry, verse 26 has the teach me and verse 27 has the make me understand. <laughs> it's... Uh, I don't know, just powerful, okay? And we, we know there's a difference between teaching and learning. But teach me, I, you know, I can teach something and people don't learn it, but make you understand it doesn't leave you with any options left over, does it? <laughs> it's almost uh, forcing it upon you. Well, that's what the psalmist is inviting. Make me understand. Get down to verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. So there's a clue as to what keeps you from living the life that we're supposed to live in the Word of God. you got your eyes on other things. You're not looking to the Lord. You're like the, the thorny ground Christian of, of the parable there of the sower. Uh, the deceitfulness of riches, the worries of life. Okay, not Zoe life. Okay, and it's choking out fruitfulness. You're not living the life that you're supposed to be living in the abundant life that's in Christ. So you're looking at vanity. You need to be revived. You need to be back looking at the Word of God again. Establish your Word to your servant as that which produces a reverence for you. Verse uh, 40. Same strophe here, the hay strophe. Verse 40 says, Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Okay? sanctification, the experiential righteousness that happens as we're living in the Word of God. And that's reviving to our, to our soul. Verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. And here, notice, you're, you're in conflict. What do you need? In, in the cough strophe of Psalm 119, there's enemies that are trying to bring him down. The... Uh, um, Verse 80, 84 says, how many are the days of your servant? When will he execute judgment on those who persecute me? You know, I mean, he's starting to wonder. How many are the days of your servant? They're out to get me. And, uh, you know, if you don't stop it or something doesn't happen, it's going to work. How many days do I have left? How many days is it going to take for their plot to succeed? <laughs> okay. When we execute, ju execute judgment on those who persecute me, the arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. That's what Robert Jewell's learning right now. He may have his whole parole derailed because an officer made up something and wrote a report against him. Now, if God permits it, he's got a purpose. Um... They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. You know, even if they're successful, guess what? It's only on this earth. <laughs> so they almost destroyed me on earth. That's all right. 
It means it's a win-win. I get to leave earth and, and they're still here. But as for me, I do not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness. There's the chesed. Loving kindness is that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Okay? Down to verse 107. Well, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I have sworn, I will confirm it, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. You know, not to be redundant or repetitive. (laughs) All right. But that's the answer. The answer is getting the word of God. Get on a crash program. Colonel Theme used to talk about crash program. You're coming out of a, a season of darkness, then, then uh, intensify your, your appetite. Make sure you're here every time the doors are open. Make sure that you're in the word in between classes. Saturate your soul with teaching. Drive everything else far from you. Man, you can give up football for a month or three months or a season or whatever. Come back in the 2016 season, all right? Give up on this season. Get right with the Lord. Get concentrated on doctrine. All right. Especially if you're a cowboy fan, what are you really living for anyway in this particular lost season? Come on. I'm teasing. All right. Verse, uh, where did I leave off? 149. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. Boy, this, this psalm sure is bossy. He's bossy in all these prayers, telling God what to do. 154, plead my cause and redeem me, revive me according to your word. 156, revive me according to your ordinances. 159, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindnesses. If your spiritual life is not what it should be, God has to do that, and that revival will come through his word. Okay? Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness for this time together. Thank you for Proverbs 7. And Father, uh, just as David with Solomon and any parent with any child, Father, those that are intimate with your word, um, they're, uh, <laughs> it's a big relief to the parental concerns, Father, in guarding uh, the young ones against the, the, uh, the false intimacies and the snares and all the other... Uh, uh, traps that are out there that not only destroy the, the soul but destroy the body and all the other uh, trouble that a young person can get into. So Father, uh, teach us these principles. Allow us to instill them to our children. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.